Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, we're back, and let's go right to the phones. And joining us from Tightline Outdoors this week is Matt Ensley. You know, Matt, Nate made some excuse he's out trying to hunt, but I think he's just goofing off. Taking a few days off. That's his vacation, honey. Well, yeah, I, I'll tell you what. He's one of the hardest working guys in the outdoor community, so I should I love to jab him, but we should we should respect him a little bit. He does a great job. But my friend, you are one of the most avid anglers up and down the front range. You're a guide, you're an accomplished fisherman. And you heard us mention it briefly about the walleyes, but this is an exciting time of the year we're getting into, isn't it? Fall is next Tuesday, uh, if I'm correct, and uh once that fall cool temperatures from the evening start the water temperatures of the lake begin to decline and boy these fish turn on a feeding frenzy and probably you know we talk about big fish in the spring because probably the best time to isolate big fish and target them is the spring but it's a very sporadic bite you can fish all day for no bites you can catch 10 fish one day you can get three bites and lose two of them in the spring in the fall and I wrote, actually wrote the chapters in uh, con, the um, the walleye books for in fishermen on this this tactic, or especially in the mountain areas. Uh, in the fall, when the bait fish get affected by these temperatures, the cold weather has just the opposite effect it does other times, and it really leads to some consistent fishing for both numbers and big fish. Right? It absolutely does. All of my big fish that I have mounted. Uh, have come into fall uh, during this period of time that starts next week. So I, I would bet for fall, if you were looking for a trophy, if you get out there and throw jigging patterns to catch them. Well, you know, and a lot of people that we've talked to early in the show are out hunting. Football season has started. A lot of people are going to stay in and watch the games. Just a lot of people have put their fishing gear away for the year, and yet it's going to be some of the best fishing of the year, but not as crowded. So how how do you approach these lakes for walleyes as we get into this time of the year? Well, I look for uh, shallower areas that the walleye can trap the, the bait fish. A lot of our lakes have shad. Other lakes have perch bases. But both of the young of the year perch or shad bait will begin to stress as the temperatures drop. You want to look for the temperature because the body of water will cool differently depending on its size. Smaller bodies of water will cool first and then medium and then large size uh, lakes. So uh, watch the water temperatures once they begin to uh, drop below 60 degrees. Uh, your previous guest was talking about it's been uh, quite warm this year, but uh, it's going to get cooler. The nights have already begun to get cool in the mountains in the 40s, and that's going to change dramatically in the next week or two. And when those water temperatures drop below 60, the bait stresses, and that's when these walleye will begin to trap those fish on edges. The edges could be humps, could be roadbeds, could be points, uh, anything that brings the depth up abruptly, and they will trap those dying bait fish against those uh, structures. Now, how do you approach them as far as what types of presentations? We we hear about jigs, jigging wraps, trolling. Do you have a favorite way, and what ways do you find most effective? Uh, 
I like three baits, basically. The blade bait has really come on strong, and lots of different uh, varieties are available these days. Um, you throw the blade bait out, it's just a uh, blade with a hunk of lead on it, and uh, let it go to the bottom, and you pull it and let it fall, pull it and let it fall to cover the area that you're trying to fish. You'll go to pull it, and it'll just be loaded up. They, they usually hit it on the fall. Um, the, the, the other bait that works quite well, been around for a long, long time, is jigging rapalus. And the jigging rapalus size, you know, five, seven, or even the big nines will work quite well. Uh, you can drop it right on their head. If you're using electronics and you know where they're at and you see them, you can take a jigging wrap and drop it right down on them and watch them hit it uh, on, the, on the electronics uh, that you're using. So those are two primary baits. And the third one that a lot of people sometimes overlook in the fall when water temperatures get cold is a jerk bait. That jerk bait, you can cast it out or troll it and rip it along behind you uh, uh, on near the bottom. You want to make sure you can get the jerk bait near the bottom. And uh, the stalling action of a jerk bait or pause that it creates when you uh, stop jerking it that's when they hit it and uh, sometimes you be sitting there and you know looking around at the sky and the fall and the leaves and <laughs> the bait sitting there dead still and you'll feel them smack it so the, those would be my three favorite baits you know i'll add i'll add to those first two for the up and down jigging a spoon a jigging spoon can be incredibly effective also but i think one thing people don't realize because they think the water's getting colder that you need a more finesse presentation, that you got to, you know, really go. But these baits have to be worked to some extent, all of them. Even the jerk bait, you have pauses, but you have to get some erratic action. But the blades, the jigging wraps, and the spoons, you're really going after a reaction bite because there's so much bait there that you can't just try to feed them, right? That's correct. It, it's a uh, aggressive presentation. It's not a, uh, a finesse presentation. Uh, with the uh, blade bait and the jigging wrap. So, yes, you drop it on their head, and you're moving it quite aggressively up off the bottom. It's that fluttering action that triggers them to hit it because they're uh, going after stressed bait fish, uh, shad or perch in a lot of cases. Um, and most of our lakes have shad in them. Uh, roar uh, is mostly perch, but uh, that shad population dies off aggressively, and that's what gets them triggered on this falling action of the uh, baits well you know another <clears throat> excuse me another key that i found if there's wipers in a lake they tend to really attack these schools and that actually adds to the dying bait fish because you'll see your streaks on the electronics of wipers going through these schools of bait fish and then you'll see the bait fish dying underneath that and the walleyes love that and this isn't just a walleye tactic though either is it i mean you'll catch smallmouth bass and Panfish, almost everything is taking advantage of those um, stressed bait fish. You're absolutely correct on that statement. I used to fish Pueblo a lot in the fall, and Pueblo has a, a good population of wipers. And we would go down there targeting the wipers, and you would spot the schools of shad suspended up in the water column. And in that ball of shad would be wipers. You would see them. You would drop your spoon. Back in those days, you mentioned spoons. We used to use one-ounce spoons down there drop them down to the level that you're seeing the, the wiper, and if you let the spoon drop further, the walleye would be right below the wiper near the bottom, and you would catch walleye. So depending on where you position that jigging 
bait that you're using would determine whether you caught a wiper or if you caught walleye. Well, you know, and I'll even add to that. We talked just a minute ago about being a reaction-type strike. When I was doing research for the article on in fishermen down there, right on the way you're talking about fishing, exactly is how you just described it. We wanted to see what the difference were. So we had some shiners that were virtually the same size as the shad that were in the schools. We were. And we pinned those shiners on a slip weight right. I mean, they were, the walleyes had to be virtually almost touching them. They were right there. And we continued to work jigging spoons at that time. We weren't doing the blades or the rapalas. We continued to catch both walleyes and wipers on the jigging spoons just on a regular basis and never had a take on that live shiner. That's how much of a reaction bite. They really are looking for that injured, stressed bait fish, aren't they? It's that fluttering action or spiraling like a jigging wrap will spiral around, but it's movement, and you're right. They're, they're triggering on the movement and the aggressive presentation that those baits, baits create. Now, once the water starts cooling, this bite starts at different places, different lakes. In fact, like Glendo, I hear it's starting all, already. Uh, McConaughey, we'll start to see it start shortly. Those are a bit of a drive. But our local lakes, it'll start up and down, and it'll just get better until you can't get on the water anymore, right? That's correct. Uh, you know, don't overlook the month of December. A lot of people quit fishing uh, in early November uh, before Thanksgiving. I've gone from Thanksgiving right on up to the middle to the latter part of December and just killed them on these jigging patterns. I had uh, 93 walleye one, one day at uh, Chatfield. And it was uh, mid-December. Water temperature was 33.5 degrees. (laughs) Now, the boat ramps are going to close pretty soon. But in the next segment, Ronnie Castiglione and I are going to talk about fishing from hand-launched boats. And you certainly can do that with this. Probably you need a good set of electronics on it. i got a couple minutes left. I want to switch up on you. I know you guys do a lot of trout fishing also. What are you seeing on some of your lakes for, like, trout and maybe even pike? Wow. It's going strong. It's probably the best bite right at this moment. Uh, We're a little early on the jigging patterns for most of our local lakes here in the metro area. But, uh, boy, in the mountains, the temperatures are starting to fall, and that fall bite is going strong. Uh, At the lakes we're fishing, Antero, Spinney, 11 Mile, Terriol, Tube Baits, uh, Tasmanian Devils, Jerk Baits work up there also. Uh, all are working quite well, and we're catching numbers of fish and, and some very nice cut bows. How long will that go on? And does, do you have any idea yet when spinning will close for the year? You know, the water level is, has begun their drawdown. It, it happens every year. Last year, uh, a lot of that water was sold, so the lake was dropped below the, the boat ramp capability, so they had to close it earlier. But it, it used usually usually goes right on up to uh, sometime in October is when it'll probably close. There's no set date. It depends on the water level. Now, you're, you also mentioned your jigging and jerk baits. What's your favorite way? Let's just say you're going to Spinney or Ontario. What's your favorite approach to going after those trout personally? White tube bait. And any particular size? You know, big baits, uh, nothing small, three to four inch uh, white or green type dark colors, uh, green or brown to imitate crawdads. They eat a lot of crayfish up there. But the white tube bait worked like a jerk bait. 
you don't let it go to the bottom. Just throw it out and start jerk, 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 jerk with a pause as you're reeling it in. It's an aggressive presentation. You're fishing it anywhere from six to one foot of water, and you'll see the fish come up and take the bait. Now, at spinny, you can't have scented, right? At Antero, you can. Correct. Correct. So so you have to make sure if you're buying these two baits, you get on scented ones for spinny, which you can find. And then you can, uh, Antero and um, Terriol and 11 Mile, you can all you can use uh, scented ones on all of those. That two bait, you know, you mentioned something, and I'm going to take an extra minute or two here, because you mentioned something that I think are so overlooked by Colorado trout fishermen. You know, I think it's influenced by the fly fishing industry. And, you know, in fly fishing, and I do a lot of both, both fly and conventional, you try to imitate maybe a bug that's in the water. I mean, you can throw big streamers and stuff, but you, you hear about little flies and imitating. And I think people, people get the misconception that you need small baits to catch trout. You know, maybe, you know, even stalker trout will hit a big bait, but it's really a misconception of small baits catch more trout, isn't it? Yes, it is, uh, particularly at Spinny. The fish at Spinny are huge. They're, you know, anywhere from four to 10-pound fish average, and that, that that's just unheard of. And part of that is what the state did in stocking that lake after the uh, whirling disease wiped most of our bodies of uh, trout fisheries out. They bought uh, the cut bows from Germany, and the fry came from Germany, and they are resistant to the whirling disease, but they grow quite large, and they are monsters that's been. Uh, I yes, love and even and they can cover water, too, Terry. That's the main thing about this technique. You're not sitting in one spot soaking a bait. You're covering water. I even put the trolling motor on and slowly move to cover a lot of water with this aggressive presentation. You know, and it works for browns, too. And you get in areas like when the browns start spawning up in the Delaney where they move to the shoreline on Blue Mesa. Uh, these same baits work, and they're aggressive tactics. I think the, we got to run, move on, but I think the message is fall fishing is about reaction. Don't be afraid to go to bigger baits, and don't be afraid to work them aggressively, wouldn't you say? It's absolutely correct. So if people want to get a hold of you guys, book a trip or more information, how do they find you, Matt? Uh, give us a call at 720-775-7770 or at Tightline Outdoors. All right, my friend, we will talk to you again soon. Good fishing. Thank you, Terry. You bet. Matt Ensley from Tightline Outdoors. We will take a quick time out, and we come back. Ronnie Castiglione is going to join us. We're going to talk about, you know, a lot of boat ramps will be closing because of water levels. A lot of things will be changing. We're going to tell you how to get on these waters and catch a lot of fish. On Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Me to get to the guest, Kyle, when you keep playing Eagles music. Yeah, sorry about that. No, you're not. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Let's go right to the phones because one of our favorite guests is waiting on the line, Ronnie Castiglione. Good morning, Ronnie. Good morning, Terry Wickstrom. How are you doing this morning? You know, I'm doing really well, and we just got a message on a text that's really going to play into what we're talking about. Rob, uh, either called or texted Karen just got me the message that went down to John Martin. The water was low. There was some algae there too, but tried a couple, a lake or two other lake there in the area and just really wasn't able to launch a boat. And so he's kind of letting people know that be careful heading down there. 
And this time of the year, this is typical in Colorado, we see two or three things happening. One, we see water levels get low where boat ramps have to close because a lot of our lakes are water storage and they're getting drawn down. We see a lack of inspection, so they close waters because there isn't enough traffic to justify having inspectors there. And then, of course, on a year-round basis, we see a lot of ponds that are great fisheries and and then we have the big, bigger waters sometimes that have restrictions to boats. All of these things can really lead to what we want to talk about today, and that's the amount of fishing you can do with hand-launched boats. Absolutely, Terry. Hand-launched vessels, be it a kayak or canoe or you know a plethora of other small little crafts, maybe even float tubes, that kind of a thing, um, they're all very effective ways to get you out on these bodies of water, especially when the boat ramps do start to close. Uh, you know, the other thing to mention is, you know, if you take a lake like Horsetooth or Carter, for example, these are lakes that have multiple boat ramps, but a lot of times they, they start to close certain boat ramps this time of year and only tend to leave one boat ramp open to larger boats. So, you know, you do have an opportunity to get out and you can still launch at these other boat ramps a lot of times with hand launch vessels. So there's an excellent, excellent opportunity to still get out on these bodies of water. And I can tell you from personal experience that fishing from a small craft is incredibly rewarding. It's, uh, you know, it's a lot of fun, even though I've got a, you know, a $50,000 bass boat sitting in the garage. Uh, I have a lot of fun getting out there on a little hand hand launch craft, Terry. Um, you know, and I've even called into the show in the past and been out on the horse tooth after the boat ramps have closed and we've been out there chasing trout. And I think one time I called in Terry and we landed something about an eight or nine pound rainbow on the phone while I was talking to you from my little hand launch craft. So the opportunity is there and just don't sleep on the little boats. The little boats are a lot of fun, Terry. Well, I know you've been fishing uh, out of a small hand launch boat for quite some time. And I think it's a two man craft. Is that right? Yeah, the one that I've had for years and years is a two-man craft. It's kind of a modified paddle paddle boat that we turned into a fishing vessel, and that's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I've also been doing a little bit of kayak fishing this year as well. Uh, I, I might have borrowed a craft from a good friend of mine that had an extra Hobie line around Terry's extra boat, folks. And I got out on that this year and had a lot of fun fishing some local ponds and, and really was having some really excellent days out getting into some good numbers and some very large fish. And you know, what's really cool is a lot of these ponds on the weekends when, when lakes like Horsetooth and Boyd are literally just bumper-to-bumper Terry, and it might take you an hour to launch and get out, you know, because there's so much traffic, that kind of a thing. You can get out on these little ponds on a Saturday or on a Sunday, and, and, and a lot of times I was the only person on the lake, Terry. I was the only person out there fishing it. There wasn't anybody fishing from shore. It was just me, and uh, it, it, there's, there's a serenity in that. There's a little peacefulness in that, being able to get out on these small crafts and access a lot of these gravel quarry ponds and things like that that we have around the state, Terry. So it's a lot of fun, and I definitely had a lot of fun doing it this year. So how do you approach? Let's start with ponds, and we'll move into the bigger lakes just a little bit, obviously. So I'm going to a, going to a bass pond, and how do, I, how, do I, how do I approach it this time of the year? If you were going to one of the local ponds, what would you do it? Well, then, you know, similar to any time of the year, Terry, if I'm looking at ponds and I'm thinking largemouth, um, maybe panfish, that sort of a thing, the big key for me on any given day is going to try to figure out – 
what sort of structure these fish may be holding on. So are they on the grass lines? Are they going to be on some of the harder gravel bottoms or rock structures? Are they going to be on hard wood, some of the submerged trees, things like that? I'm going to, I'm going to spend the first part of my day kind of jumping around and looking at multiple pieces of structure and, or cover. And once I get an idea of what these fish are holding on, then I'm going to attempt to replicate that all around the pond and try to find things that are similar. Um, the other thing is this time of year, what we start to see on, on a lot of the smaller bodies of water is that the aquatic vegetation starts to die off, Terry. We're getting really, really cold nights right now. I mean, not really cold, but geez, last night, Terry, it was in the fifties, you know, it was very chilly out when I got up this morning and, uh, the grass starts to die off this time of year. So if I'm going to find fish on grass, I'm going to be looking for the grass that still is green, the aquatic vegetation that, that isn't brown and dying. I'm looking for the green stuff. And a lot of times if you get into areas and you're just kind of snagging and finding a lot of dead grass, I'm going to vacate that area altogether, Terry, and try to try to locate a different section of the lake that's got the green stuff in it. Um, Covering water is important this time of year. Early in the morning, a lot of times these fish won't be related to structure or cover. A lot of times this time of year, they're in open water to start the day. They're out there chasing bluegills. They're out there chasing perch or some sort of bait fish, that kind of a thing. So, you know, I heard you guys talking so far about a lot of the the different presentations that, that work as we get into fall, but I didn't hear anybody bring up surface lures, Terry. And surface lures, something like a walking bait or a popper or a chopo, are absolutely one of my favorite ways to go out and cover water and effectively catch fish as we get into fall. Um, a lot of times it's the bigger fish that will come up and eat something like a zero spook walking that thing on the surface uh, and so surface baits are another excellent presentation uh, cranking is also a very good effective way to go about covering water this time of year uh, really trying to work the baits relatively fast bouncing it off the rocks bouncing it off the face of the dams bouncing it off of the trees that kind of a thing spinner baits are also a very effective presentation as we get into fall here looking for bass in these smaller ponds that have a lot of wood and grass in them a spinner bait will come through that very effectively a lot of times and then as we get later in the year, then I start looking at some of those vertical approaches, Terry. But covering water can be key this time of year. And, and one, of the, one of the things we've always said, Terry, is that if you're not near the bait fish, you're not near the fish you're looking to catch. And as you get into fall, that saying is very, very true, Terry. A lot of times it's about finding the bait. All right. Now i got a couple things. We're, we're, we're almost out of time, but we're going to steal some time from JR, and then I'm going to give it back to him at the end because he loves the fish too, so he's going to listen for a minute. But first we had a, uh, a texter that wants to know if you can fish Chatfield after the boat ramps close with a, a hand-launched uh, boat. Most of the park lakes and most lakes in Colorado, Ronnie, to my knowledge, you can fish after the boat ramps close with uh, hand-launched boats. Don't you agree? Yeah, and it really does However, come down to the specific lake, Terry. So you really gotta gotta find out the specific regulations as it relates to the lake. Uh, you take a lake like Boyd, for example, which is a state park lake. When they close the the boat ramps at Boyd, it's closed to all surface activity, so you can't get out there on a kayak, that kind of a thing. Horsetooth, for example, which is a Larimer County lake, or Carter, for for example, uh, absolutely, you can get out on those lakes when they close those boat ramps, and you can get out there on a kayak or a handline 
launch vessel, um, that sort of a thing. You've got to make sure that you're not utilizing a motor of sorts that requires an ANS inspection. So you've got to understand that. If you have a small craft, but you're going to take something out there that's like a smaller gas-powered engine that hooks to the back of it, that, I believe, makes you fall into the class where they would require you to have an ANS inspection. So you don't want to do that. But a lot of times uh, electric trolling motors are fine or any of the man paddle crafts are going to be fine. But I, I would suggest contracting the particular body of water because it's just not the same at every lake, Terry. Last question. we got to make this kind of brief, but what's the biggest mistake tackle-wise people make when they're going out on a kayak or a small paddle craft? to do some fishing because obviously you can't carry two dozen rods and three boxes of tackle like you and I do normally. So how, how do you, what, what's the biggest mistake people make? Well, you definitely want to pare down your tackle presentations. You know, you don't want to take a whole bunch of stuff with you, but you, you want to take a variety of things so that you can adapt. Um, I would say as far as the rods and reels and that sort of a thing, you, you want to bring some rods that are going to cover multiple presentations. So you don't want to bring necessarily really specific rods that are only good at certain presentations. You want to bring some rods with you that will cover multiples. And one of the bigger tips that I can give people is when you're fishing from small crafts, utilizing something like braid or a super line is going to be really effective because you can change the leader that you might be putting on that braid to adapt to different presentations. So, you know, you can change it to a mono leader if you're throwing a surface lure. You can put a fluorocarbon leader, a lighter one if you're going finesse, and then you could put a heavier fluorocarbon leader if you're flipping or jigging or doing something like that and you need something a little beefier. So, you know, I kind of adapt the same tactics that I utilize when I travel, Terry, and it's really the same gear a lot of times as far as the tackle and the tackle boxes and things like that that I take with me. Those are the same things I tend to take to Florida or on the airplane with me. And then the rods. I I don't necessarily take my travel rods out on my small boats, but I I will pick rods that I can utilize for multiple presentations. One other big one, real quick, Terry, and I'll let you go, is that when you're fishing from a smaller vessel, something like a kayak or a small canoe, things like that, a very, very fast reel, a reel that eats up a lot of line can be crucial a lot of times, Terry, in being successful at landing your fish and getting hooks into your fish. Small boats tend to move when you set the hook and when you try to reel tight the fish. And if you're utilizing a slower reel, you won't get solid hook sets a lot of times. So a reel that really eats up a lot of line that allows you to reel into that fish and set the hook hard and stay tight, that can be really, really crucial in being successful at landing fish from a small craft, Terry. All right, my friend, we are way out of time. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ronnie. All right, buddy. You have a good one. You bet, Ronnie Castiglione, he is just a great resource. And we're going to, I know JR is patiently, I hope patiently waiting. And JR, I promise, we got a lot of time to give you your full segment. And I really do. He's going to talk to us about getting ready for hunting and a lot of other firearms related subjects on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 1043 The Fan. All right, as much as I'd like the listeners to take it to the limit, we need to get right to the phones. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear and 104.3 The Fan. And patiently waiting, I hope, is J.R. Pierce from Colorado Clays. Good morning, J.R. Good morning, Terry. We just have so much to talk about, but I made sure I saved time for you, my friend. I appreciate that, Terry. We do have some good uh, stuff to cover today, no doubt. Well, you know, all the the hunting seasons are, are happening right now. 
And, of course, you provide something for anybody. Brad Peterson made a comment. We were talking waterfall hunting. He said, boy, it starts in just a couple weeks. Uh, Youth and military starts next week. He said, if you haven't been out shooting, you need to get out and shoot your shotgun. He said, shooting around a clays or some skeet or trap will just give you so much more success and knock the rust off. And you sure offer the opportunities for that, don't you? Yes, Terry. And, you know, with so many seasons already upon us and many more still to come, it really is great to see so many people taking advantage of the fact that Colorado Clays truly is Colorado's premier public shooting facility. Uh, Of course, we offer the finest in rifle, pistol, and shotgun practice opportunities, and we have the open to the public shooting six days a week, so these folks can really arrange their practice around their schedule. And, you know, Terry, I, I totally agree. Any practice is good practice. And when you look at Colorado Clays with our seven ATA uh, trap fields, our two NSSA skeet fields, those two wobble traps, which we all know is great upland, and then our beautiful 15-station sporting clays course, uh, there truly is something for everyone. And, and I must say, Terry, I know uh, the dove conspiracy continues. Um, I've had... Uh, quite a few folks coming out and looking me up and just asking for a particular presentation they're struggling with. Um, you know, a gentleman was here last week, said, I need to practice this high crossing shot. I've got a corner of a fence, and that's what I'm getting, and I'm not hitting them. So, you know, Terry, these birds are getting smarter, and the shots are getting tougher. So I encourage everyone for sure, get out the Colorado Clays for that perfect practice because we're here to help. And it's turning out to be one of our best dove seasons in a long time. It's phenomenal. But as you know, you mentioned the conspiracy. I've already stated many times it's a dove season is a conspiracy to sell shotgun ammunition. Speaking of that, what's the ammo situation looking like? Well, Terry, it's just not getting better. It's uh, staying not real good. Um, Colorado Clays, of course, with our... Um, buying power and friends in the industry we've been managing to keep most of those popular calibers and gauges and we're going to work diligently to keep doing that so um we're uh, we're looking out for our customers yeah i know you are you always take care of them you know i want to switch gears on you real quick and that's you know muzzle loader and b and rifle seasons are just around the corner um how do you are you still able to accommodate them doing sight-ins yeah, Terry, we're we're running wide open today. As a matter of fact, uh, we've been doing lots of muzzleloader sight-in, and uh, I think I told you last time our RSOs came up with that 50 caliber range pack to to help people get on paper, get their gun close, and then fine tune with uh, their hunting ammo so they don't have to burn up that hard to get ammo. So we've been doing lots of muzzle loaders. Of course, being a muzzle loader friendly facility, uh, it's a very comfortable place to get sighted in. And rifle, yeah, the folks are already coming out, uh, getting ready for those seasons. It's very impressive how serious uh, people are taking that this year. And uh, uh, we're just so, so glad to be able to accommodate them. Well, and you know, one of the things I like about getting ready for hunting at your facility is that a lot of places you can just shoot on a bag from a bench. Well, you and I both know that you very seldom get to make a shot like that in the field, and your position, whether you're prone or sitting or leaning against a tree, uh, changes the point of impact in your sight picture, and they really need to practice that. Absolutely, Terry, and that's one of the 
beautiful things about Colorado clays is that each rifle stall has that padded bench. We have sandbags, we have adjustable wrists, we have composite wrists, we have lead sleds, anything you need to do to get going on paper, but we also have that option of a prone shot, um, practicing with shooting sticks, uh, whatever your likelihood of a shot will be, we can represent that here at Colorado Clays. And then just the bonus, Terry, is this video uh, viewing site in. Uh, we literally have a telephoto camera on your 100-yard target, a monitor in your bay. So rather than having to grab a spotting scope between shots, you simply look up at the monitor, check your point of impact, make your adjustments, Side in goes quick, easy, and accurate. Um, so definitely take advantage of that. You know, I, I know we want to talk about some upcoming upcoming things we're going to cover, but before we get to that, there's one other thing that always jumps out at me, and that's patterning. And I think the one thing that we don't talk about enough is we, when we, you know, we talk about this a lot during Turkey, but it applies to all shotgunning. We really found out on this shooting from a different position that really affected the impact of your pattern on the shotgun, didn't it? No, absolutely, Terry. And, you know, there are so many variables on a pattern uh, from the gun, the choke selection, the ammo selection, um, distances, but shooting position, it is amazing. Now, I did have a couple gentlemen out getting ready with a new duck choke uh, and some loads they had. And uh, they did say they were going to be blind hunting, and it happened again about two weeks ago, Terry. Gentlemen out there just did a, a good standing shot, nice-looking pattern, went ahead and sat down, sat against our uh, picnic table, and we ended up with that, once again, up to 30% higher patterning because of the way your head sits on the gun, your sight picture, um, and what other um, variables might contribute to that. So make sure when you pattern a gun or even sight in a gun that you do yourself a favor and do it from the positions you may encounter on your hunt, or you might be surprised um, what happens. Okay, now we only got a couple minutes left, but you and I talked that we're going to start doing a, about every other week kind of how to pick out the right gun. Like we'll do one day, we'll do shotguns, maybe we'll do that one in two weeks. Then we'll do handguns or rifles, but we'll talk about how to pick out. But the first thing I think question, I'm going to kind of get us wet their appetite is, how do you even know what you should be buying? Should you be buying a shotgun and maybe hunting with slugs in a shotgun? Should you be buying a, a pistol for self-defense or should you be buying something else? How do you start deciding what firearm you should be looking at first, JR? Terry, great question, and I'll probably use my couple minutes here because there's so much to cover on this topic. So, yes, Terry, for years, one of the most frequently asked questions here at Colorado Clays is from people wanting to purchase a firearm but not knowing what gun they should choose. And I definitely think the first question to ask is, what am I purchasing this firearm for? Is it for hunting, for home defense, recreational shooting, competition, what have you? Then we need to decide, is this firearm going to be chosen specifically for one application, or do I want one that can be used for more than one purpose? Um, because this can often change the selection you'll be choosing from. So, you know, you can often get a broader range of uses from a single firearm with simple changes to a particular style or platform when you're researching your options prior to making the purchase. And of course, another question to ask is, will it just be myself using this firearm? Or will my husband, my wife, my kids, my friends, et cetera, 
be using it as well. This can also change your choice because the size, the weight, the fit, the caliber or gauge can affect whether this gun, uh, another person can safely or comfortably handle that gun. And that, of course, brings us to what gauge or caliber is right for my uses. Um, many firearms have the same or similar models available in multiple gauges or calibers. And there are many important considerations um, and making the correct choice for yourself before you purchase is very important. So as we've been saying here lately, the most available ammo may be a factor, uh, something you factor into your choice as well. Some of the specialty calibers are still nearly impossible to find, Terry. And of you know, one of the biggest and most common situations I see that determines which firearms a person chooses from is financial limitations. There is really almost no limit to the amount of money that can be spent purchasing, setting up, or customizing a firearm. And even though it is often true that you can get higher quality by spending more money, there really are a lot of very good quality options out there for reasonable pricing. And uh, I think, Terry, I think I finally should say that probably one of the most valuable resources available to everyone in Colorado is Colorado Clay Shooting Park and our best in the industry pro staff. We are always willing to help our customers make a well thought out purchase based on our years of experience in the firearms field and we'd be glad, glad to help people out with that. You are absolutely right. I think next week, we'll, not next week, but two weeks, we'll probably start on sh shotguns. We have to run, my friend, but if people want more information, how do they find you? Uh, give us a call, Terry, 303-659-7117, or go to the website, coloradoclays.com. Um, leave us a message. Take the virtual tour. Check out the facility. But by all means, get out here to Colorado Clays, and we look forward to seeing you. All right, my friend, we've got to run. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks, and we'll talk specifics on shotguns. We're going to take a quick timeout. You bet. We're going to take a quick timeout. We get back. We're going to wrap up the show, and we may even visit with Dan Jacobs and get his view on the Broncos right here on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. All right, we are back on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear. In a minute, I'm going to get to Mr. Dan Jacobs because I want to ask him some questions. But real quick, we got a couple of housekeeping things. One is on uh, October 9th from 10 to 12, there's going to be a free family or free fishing clinic for people of all ages. It's going to go from 10 to noon. You don't need any of your own. You don't need any equipment or you can bring yours. You don't even need a fishing license for this. You're going to fish in stock ponds. And they're going to have people there to answer questions, to teach you how to tie knots, to talk about presentations. So it's going to be two hours really dedicated to helping beginners learn to fish. And that's on the 9th from 10 to 12. Now, for more information on that, I have posted a link on my Facebook page at Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. You can click on that link. It'll take you to it. It gives you all the information. Great opportunity, but you do have to register ahead of time. So go check that out. The other thing is our dog expert, uh, Ben Garcia, wants to get questions from um, the outdoor public. He's our dog training expert with Hideaway Kennels, and he's also with Rocky Mountain Roosters. He's been doing a great job of hunt tips on training hunting dogs. So he wants to answer your questions. So the next couple weeks, um, we're going to take questions. I'll, I'll try to have Karen 
put up something on our our uh, Facebook page, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, over the next couple of days explaining what we're going to do. But what it'll basically come down to is you'll leave a question in the comment on that post. We'll we'll pin that post to the top of our Facebook page. Then at the end of the two weeks, we'll try to we'll start answering as many of those questions as we can, even if it takes a couple of weeks. But the great part is two weeks from now. When we close the questions, and we won't close them, you can still ask, but we're going to take the questions to a certain date, and somebody that sends in a question is going to win a free three oil change, full-service oil change package from Prestige Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram of Longmont. This is like over $100 value. It's three oil changes. You have to use over two years. You can't do diesel, but you're going to get three free full-service oil changes out of this. So it's going to be a great prize for getting your dog questions in. So once we get that posted next couple of days, make sure you start getting your questions in. And you know what? We'll take more than one question. Just put them in the comments once we get that post up. All right, let's see. Is our good friend Dan Jacobs in studio? Boy, could I use Mr. Garcia's help. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I've got a puppy tearing the house apart. Uh, not so much on the hunting, the training, but if he could, you know, just tell my, you know, train my dog, help us train the dog to not destroy everything in its path. That would be helpful. Yeah. I'm sure he could help with that. (laughs) I kind of enjoy the fact that that's happening. Yeah, I I know you do. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I got, I, I I know we're going to run up against your time, but I have some real questions going into this week. Bring it on. And this is, this is besides the four starters that are going to miss this game. First of all, Everybody talks about how great the Broncos' offense looked, but Washington scored 30 points against the Giants on Thursday night, and I don't <laughs> think their offense is really any good at all. Right? They couldn't. They could, except for one play. They had no running game. The offensive line, both in pass protection and in and in setting up the run, were just getting pushed around. Now I understand the Giants have a very big defensive front. And it's going to be a different situation. But the offensive line got pushed around. First question I have for you, is that because Shermer just was determined to try to run up the middle and never took anything outside to spread those spread that defensive line? Well, what Vic Fancho said was the Giants sold out and were just going to do everything they could to take away the run. And that was their excuse. So I don't know. I mean, take it for what it's worth, Terry. Yeah, but, I mean, wouldn't you just try to misdirection, some zone blocking, get some, break somebody outside? Um, just to, because, because they were trying to run up the middle, the pressure kept coming up the middle on Bridgewater, too. And everybody talks about his ability to slide around in the pocket. And that's my other question. Was he just exceptionally sharp with that that game because those bigger linemen aren't quite as quick? Or is, this, is Teddy for real? Well, I do believe Teddy's for real. I thought he was for real. Uh, but I very astute of you, Terry, which is odd. Um, I'm, sure, I'm very surprised, Teddy, or, uh, Terry. But, no, I, I didn't think the offensive line played particularly well. If you were watching Garrett Bowles, he may not have uh, given up a sack, but he was like a bullfighter out there. His man beat him consistently and gave consistent pressure in the passing game uh, on uh, Teddy Bridgewater. And Teddy Bridgewater just – bailed out his offensive line time and time again throughout that game. And as you said, they did not run the ball particularly well at all, and they kind of gave up on it. And then late in the game, yes, they had the big thing, uh, the big run by Melvin Gordon, 70-plus yards to kind of pad the stats. 
But I think what you your your perception was right. They beat up on a very bad team. I had no idea how atrocious Daniel Jones is as a quarterback. And you're right, man. When the the woeful Washington team you know scores thirty points on you, maybe we want to take a step back and go, okay, pump the brakes. This is a very favorable schedule early on for the Broncos. Right. Last question, and I know we're cutting into your time. It's fine. And Kyle's going to have to do a station ID here in a minute, but the young. Uh, cornerback Sertan is going to get pushed into the starting role because of the injury to Darby. Uh, he made a huge mistake in a, in a coverage. I know Fangio tried to say that it wasn't his responsibility, but sure as heck looked like it. Uh, hopefully he's ready. Well, hey, this is great for him. They're probably going to win no matter what. Get him in there. Get him experience. Why not develop him now early? Well, I think the other side of it is the mistake that happened last week. Now, not that I think he had an attitude, but I think as a rookie coming in, no matter how much you've been great in college, it's probably an eye-opener as to the work it takes. Right. And by the way, I saw the pictures of you uh, at the Eagles concert. Hey, if you can't go to Beatles concert, which you can't, why not go to an Eagles concert? Well, I prefer it anyway. <laughs> so uh, the only question I have for you mm-hmm. is when my album goes platinum, are you going to buy it? Oh, Absolutely. Terry and the Rattlers at the Moose Caboose? I'll be there live. No, it, 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 it's not Terry and the Rattlers. We'll announce <laughs> the name here shortly. All right. I'll let you do some sports. I'll close this out so you can get on the air. All right. Thanks, boss. You bet. That's all for Terry Wicks from Outdoors, and we took part of Dan's time. Join us every Saturday from 9 to 11. Follow us on Facebook at Terry Wicks from Outdoors. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Karen. We'll step aside. Let the Eagles take us to Dan Jacobson Sports on 104.3 The Fan. Summer sweat.